Hey there, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So as of today, we're beginning our study of Ephesians chapter 2. I don't think everybody's familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast, and so on, right? I'm going to argue today uh, that that verse, and especially the entire entirety of Ephesians chapter 2, uh, may be one of the most misunderstood and misapplied chapters, and maybe even texts, in the entire Bible. Uh, so today, in today's podcast, I'm just going to sort of introduce that idea, give you some keys and tips on how to understand the entirety of Ephesians chapter 2, and then we're going to dive in and look just at the first verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Okay, so that's where we're headed today. And uh, I also have a question from a reader today, uh, a listener, I should say, about the problem of peace in the Middle East. So we're just going to dive right in and, and begin right there. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's something in your email box. Well, thank you very much. Let's look at this question. It comes from Aaron. He sent it to my email through the contact form on my website at redeeminggod.com. Here's the question. I just listened to your recent podcast about Ephesians and the comments as to the situation in Israel and Palestine. Uh, That was a a previous podcast episode earlier in Ephesians. So anyway, he goes on. I found the two particularly contrasting. You seem to be so close and yet so far. Theologically, you are on the side which understands the immediacy of the kingdom of God and our participation in it uh, here and now through loving our neighbors and your understanding of deliverance in heaven on earth are testament to that. I thank God you're not a fundamentalist. Yet your discourse about Israel and its right to occupy, or in your words, defend, was seemingly of stark contrast to your theological position. I'm not sure the argument that the subsequent occupation after the Six Days War for defensive purposes holds much water at all. Specifically, I wonder what your response is towards the following two videos. Some Israelis seem to be in less denial about what they are doing to Palestinians than the West in general. And for the second video, just oh as oh, as for the second video just provides more context than just the immediate aftermath of the Six-Day War. Okay, and then he he gives the uh, links to these two YouTube videos that he's referring to. And I will include links to those, or maybe even the videos themselves, in the notes for this podcast study. And so you can watch those if you're curious what he's asking about. Um, the link for this podcast study, if you're listening to this, is redeeminggod.com slash Ephesians 2.1. Okay, so um, let me just say, first of all, he mentions that I'm not a fundamentalist. I actually think I am a fundamentalist. It's not his question, but I just wanted to talk about this because it sort of addresses where I'm coming from. Now, I know that the word fundamentalist has uh, lots of negative connotations in many Christian circles today. But uh, I define myself as a fundamentalist the way the term in the way the term originally meant. A lot of people don't know this, but the term the fundamentalist comes from a set of 90 essays or a series of 90 essays that were collected and published by R. A. Torrey and A. C. Dixon between 1910 and 1915. They were eventually published in 12 volumes. Uh, which now I think you can get them in four volumes or even a one-volume complete set. 
And the cool thing about what they did back then is they didn't just publish them and, and, and put them up for sale. They uh, made them available free of charge. They mailed them out to as many pastors around the country as they could. They had some financial backing for this, so they printed them and mailed them out to try to help uh, basically pastors around the country sort of learn about the fundamentals of the Christian faith and uh, what we, the beliefs that are central to our life as followers of Jesus. Okay, now I don't agree with everything in all 90 essays. I Frankly, I haven't read all 90 essays. Many of them I have. Um, but uh, that's where the term, the fun- fundamentalists come from. Okay, it comes from that term there. And since I am in agreement with, with much of what is written in those 90 essays, then I identify myself with that group. Okay, now again, uh, I, I don't like the way the term fundamentalist is used today in reference to some of the more mm, negative aspects of Christianity. Let's just put it that way. There's a lot of hate out there on all sides of the aisle. And so I try to avoid all those sorts of debates. Anyway, that's a complete <laughs> complete side trail here from the question from Aaron. Let's go on to this question about Israel and Palestine. So I did make some comments in a previous podcast study about peace in the Middle East and, and what's going on over there. And I watched both of these videos that he sent me. And honestly, with the overall message of both videos, I do not disagree with them. I'm in basic agreement with the the overall message, okay? So I just want to put that out there. There there is a long history of problems between the Hebrews and the Arabs who are living in Israel. And I, I agree that there are extremists on both sides that want to see the other side destroyed. And both sides go about that in different ways, some through launching rockets, and shooting and things like that. Um, the other side through neglect and abuse and and you know ignoring the plight of certain problems that have been caused over there. Okay, but but that's not really uh, you know, and I've never taught otherwise than this. Okay, uh, one of the problems with trying to answer a, a difficult question like this, or in the previous discussion, is you can never say everything that needs to be said, and uh, you always leave something out. So let me just try to clarify a little bit and speak specifically to some of what is brought up in the first video. The first video, you have to read it because it is, um, it's from a, an Israeli uh, comedian, actually. His name is Asaf Harel, and it was published on haretz.com. Uh, his last broadcast before he was taken off the air. And basically, he sort of challenged... Uh, the way the Israeli, the, the Jewish Israeli uh, political party and ruling class is treating some of the Palestinians. Okay, and so he made some claims in the video that I, I want to challenge and sort of push back on a little bit. First of all, he starts off by saying that Israel is an apartheid state. Can I address this before? Uh, Israel is not an apartheid state, uh, at least not by the political or the dictionary definition of apartheid state. Okay, an apartheid state is where basically the ruling class does not allow anybody else uh, in the in the country to have any say in the direction or decisions of the country. Uh, that is not what is happening in Israel, not even close. It is what has happened, by the way, in, in all other Middle Eastern countries uh, in, in in the Middle East, which are generally dominated by Muslims and Arabs. Okay, uh, but it's not happening in Israel. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, and truly is a democracy. It has a fairly good representation of the demographics of the people who are in Israel. Uh, Arab people make up roughly 20% of the population in Israel. And guess what? I talked about this before, but guess what? About 20% of the politicians and the doctors and the... I mean, you take any sort of uh, 
job or profession or whatever person in power in Israel, and about 20% of them will be Arab. So that's pretty good representation. Okay, now, I'll agree, it's hard to get anything done that you yourself want done if you're only 20%. Okay, so maybe that's what this comedian Asaf Harel was talking about, uh, that this, this 20%, it's hard for them to get changes and rules passed uh, that are beneficial to them because they're only 20%. And I, I see the point, but what's, what's the alternative? Are you going to let the minority rule? Are you going to say, well, your 20% uh, should get 80% of the vote? I mean, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. So anyway, the point is, he said it's an apartheid state. It is definitely not an apartheid state. I would challenge him 100% on that. Uh, there are uh, Arab politicians on Israeli parliament. Okay, There are Arab justices on, on the Israeli Supreme Court. Okay, that, that is not an apartheid state. Okay, so anyway, um, it is, Israel is a representative democracy, and it does a really good job of that, so we cannot criticize it in that regard. Anyway, he went on, this comedian, to indicate that Israel is withholding water, energy, and basic food necessities from the Arab Israelis. Okay, uh, <laughs> that also is not true. Um it is true that basic necessities, food and water and energy, are not getting sent or not giving, being given to the Arab Israelis uh, living there. Many of them are living in very poor situations, much abject poverty. But that's not the ruling classes of—that's not the Jewish people's fault. Uh, quite to the contrary, uh, uh, the United States it's ourselves have, have given billions and billions of dollars in aid to— uh, to the Palestinian Authority, those who sort of oversee the, the Arab people living in Israel. Okay? Uh, Israel herself, their leadership, has also given millions, tens of millions of dollars to the Palestinian Authority. And guess what happens? The Palestinian Authority gives that money to the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, or to Hamas, both of which are basically terrorist organizations. And those organizations take this aid money. And rather than give it to the people, rather than, you know, do infrastructure or help with food and water and energy, those sorts of things, basic health care, they take that money and they buy weapons and guns and bombs and things like that with it so that they can attack Israel. Okay, so it, it is not the problem of uh, Israel withholding food and water and energy from the Palestinian people. It's the Palestinian leadership themselves who are choosing to use the aid money uh, in, in ways that do not help their people. Okay, I have numerous articles linked to, from my three articles here, linked to my website, which shows this. And uh, these articles are from Forbes and Wall Street Journal, okay, so that, and other sources. So it shows that these, these problems, that that's what's happening in the country today. Okay, now look, if I gave, if I had a poor neighbor and I gave them $1,000 to buy food and clothing for their children, but they used that money, that $1,000 to go buy guns and ammo so they could shoot at me, I'm not going to be too keen about the idea when they come complain that I am the one starving their children. Right? That, that argument does not hold weight. But that's often what is being done with, with Israel and the Palestinians. Um, our children are dying, suffering. Well, I gave you money to buy food. Yeah, but we spent it on guns. Our children are dying. Okay, well, choose to spend your money some other way. Anyway, uh, finally and thirdly, this, this, the comedian, um, his whole argument he, near the end, 
He, he goes on to talk about the right-wing Israelis, and they're arguing that the left-wing is extremist, and basically says that's not true. All it really proves is that the right-wing Israelis themselves are extremists. They're the only extremists because they are arguing that the left is extremist, and the left just wants to love people and create peace. He says they're humanitarian. Uh, and so uh, that just his, his point is, really, it's circular reasoning. It's, it's illogical <laughs> to say that if you accuse someone of, uh, of being extremist, that means you yourself are, are an extremist. Well, that's an accusation of, of being an extremist. And so b- based on that same logic, Asef Harel is saying that he himself is an extremist because he's saying that the right wing people are extremists. Anyway, it, it's really not a, a rational argument that he makes there. Uh, and I would agree with the basic point though. I think maybe he was sort of making, I'm not quite sure. Got a little convoluted in his explanation, especially with the translation, uh, in the video that, uh, there are extremists on both sides. And I think we can agree to that. Uh, I have never said that Israel is without fault in how they are treating the Arab, uh, citizens of Israel. Okay. I have never said that. Uh, there is there is fault on both sides, and both sides need to own up to how they are contributing to the violence and to the situation in Israel. Okay, um, this brings me then to the, the probably the best line in the entire video, right near at the end. He says, "If only for once we could be smart enough to reach a peace agreement before the war." I could not agree with that more. That is exactly right. We should be smart enough to achieve peace before we go to war. Lots of times, we as countries and nations, we go to war in order to achieve peace. That's how we, that's how we sell it anyway. Uh, but, but I wish we could be smart enough to achieve the peace without the war. And guess what? The Bible tells us how. The world will never be able to come up with a solution, with a way to, to accomplish that. But the Bible does. Jesus shows us how. And the way is through uh, truth and love and forgiveness, specifically truth to start with, but not so much truth about our enemies, but truth about ourselves. We need to all own up to the fact how we are contributing to this situation. And, and maybe it's not so much Israel versus Palestine or whatever, uh, Israelis, you know, the Jews versus the Arabs there, but, but maybe how we ourselves are contributing to violent and, and uh, stressful situations in our own lives, in our own marriage, with our neighbors or our co-workers, okay? So, so when the Bible calls us, uh, you know, to, to look at, to be truthful, t- our tendency is to point the finger at somebody else. Yeah, they need to own up to their faults. Well, no, uh, you need to own up to your faults first. I need to own up to my faults uh, before we start pointing the finger at somebody else. And then, of course, forgiveness, and that is offering extending forgiveness to the other person. Whether they ask for it or not, it's free, unconditional forgiveness extended to them, even if they don't own up to their fault, even if they do not ask, uh, say they're sorry, even if they do not ask for forgiveness or anything like that, um, and, and loving them as, as Christ loved the church, as God loves us. All of those sorts of factors are, are the, the, the way to peace. Now, do you think any country in the world is going to do that? No, of course not, at least not on their own. But uh, countries can live this way if they are shown how by Christians, by people who follow Jesus, by, li- by people who live this way in our own lives so that we can show the world a better way to live, a way to live 
in peace with one another. Okay. And uh, guess what? That is exactly where we're going with today in our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and really in all of our studies going forward of Ephesians chapter 2. So that's sort of a, that's why I chose this, this question to answer today, because it's a, a good introduction to where we are going in Ephesians chapter 2. So with all that in mind, then, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and what it means and how it addresses these, these significant problems of peace in our world today. I opened up this podcast by saying that Ephesians chapter 2 may be one of the most misunderstood chapters in the New Testament, and this is largely due to the, our tendency to read, to read the entire Bible through sort of heaven-colored glasses, so to speak. Okay, we read the Bible, and for whatever reason, we think everything is about how to go to heaven when we die. And so we read passages about repentance or sin or whatever, and we think that the Bible is telling us this is how to go to heaven when you die. And sadly, the vast majority of those passages have nothing whatsoever to do with going to heaven when you die. And instead about, sort of as that question from Aaron indicated— um, how to live our life now as followers of Jesus in light of the kingdom of God. All right? And, and this is definitely true of Ephesians chapter 2. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. Okay, people read that and they think, oh, this is how to go to heaven when you die. And I agree, it mentions faith and it mentions grace. Of course, then it has that word saved, which you know, as I've taught elsewhere. Um, I don't believe the word saved or salvation anywhere in the Bible refers to how to go to heaven when you die. And we'll be looking deeply at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 when we get there here in a few few weeks. Okay? But um, that's not what Ephesians chapter 2 is about. Look, most people read Ephesians chapter 2. Here's sort of a brief summary of how most people read, how most pastors, Bible college professors, seminary professors teach and, and write about Ephesians chapter 2. Sort of a summary here. Uh, we humans are evil sinners. That would be Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Okay, we're under the control of the devil and our sin nature. And we were dead. We were unable to do anything to change, right? And, and because of sin, God's wrath burns against us. All this is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Uh, thankfully, though, God sent Jesus to help us out. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. And, with, you know, we can get it by grace through faith, so on, okay? And so that if you believe, you know, have faith in Jesus, then you can go to heaven when you die. And I don't know what all that stuff in there is about Ephesians 2, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, but, uh, you know, it's also good good uh, news for us as well. Because, we, you know, now that we have eternal life and going to heaven when we die, maybe that helps us, you know, get along with other people somehow. I don't know. That's sort of, obviously it's a caricature. But that's sort of how people read and understand Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, now honestly, I, from a theological perspective, I actually don't have too many problems with anything I said there. It is true we're enslaved to sin. It is true that we are deceived by Satan and by the devil. And Okay, it is true that God sent Jesus to rescue us and redeem us and deliver us. And it is true that we receive eternal life solely by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. All of that's true. I do not deny, I do not disagree with any. It is true. We will uh, go to heaven in a sense. We will spend eternity with God. All of that's true. 
The Bible teaches that in various places. I just do not think that Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the passages that teaches that. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2 has similar terminology as all of that, which is, which is what causes the confusion, but that is not what Paul is teaching or writing about in Ephesians chapter 2. So what I'm going to show you starting today and in the next several podcast episodes is what Ephesians chapter 2 is actually teaching. We're going to come up with a radically different understanding of Ephesians chapter 2. It will help, we'll see what Paul is talking about. And we're, we're going to see how this chapter makes a whole lot more sense in light of Paul's overall message and flow and structure of Ephesians. And surprisingly, how the message of Ephesians 2 is much more convicting and is much more applicable to our lives, to the church, than just this message about how to go to heaven when you die. I mean, that's an important message, how to receive eternal life. It's a very important message, but... Uh, at a risk of maybe overemphasizing things too much, uh, the message of Ephesians chapter 2 might be even more important than that. Okay? So, uh, before we got, we're just going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 today, but before I do that, let me just sort of give you, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit, sort of give you a foreshadowing of where we're going, a map of where we're headed in Ephesians chapter 2. That way, if, if for some reason this happens to be the only podcast episode you hear on Ephesians chapter 2, you still have sort of a big picture overview of what the chapter is all about. So remember from last time, Ephesians chapter 1, this is context, has just ended with a statement by Paul that he is going to show the church how the church, how us, how we, as the body of Jesus, right? The physical body of Jesus in this world, how we are the only solution to all the problems in the world. It was a radical statement by Paul there at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. And so a lot of people miss the transition here to Ephesians chapter 2 because of that unfortunate chapter break, which of course was not Paul didn't put that there. This is a transition. Hey, I'm going to show you, the church, how you are the, the solution to all the problems in the world. And then he dives right in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, to show that. Okay, so that's just following the flow of Paul's argument here. Chapter 2 is going to show us the greatest problem in the world and how the church can fix it. Okay, now, what is the greatest problem in the world? What we do, Ephesians chapter 2, is very organized in its structure. It presents the problem. Paul just said, I'm going to show you how the church can fix the greatest problem in the world. So he naturally begins with the greatest problem in the world, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And then he shows us the solution, what Jesus, what God in Jesus has done about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And then he shows us finally the application, what we as the church are supposed to do with what we've seen in Jesus, with what Jesus has shown us, with what Jesus revealed to us. Okay, so uh, Ephesians chapter 2 sort of follows a natural progression. Problem, solution, application. Great. So what we can do then is go to the end, this application section at the end, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and look at what the church is supposed to do, the, the problem that we are supposed to fix. And when we do that, we go and we see that, guess what? The problem is there that, that, that we're trying to fix in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, is the great problem that most of us humans sort of hate each other, 
And that is not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love each other and break down all those barriers of race and religion, okay, and, and, and morality and all these things that keep us separate and apart and hating one another and instead unite in Jesus Christ. That's the application. That's where we're headed in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 22. It goes back to this, this Arab-Israeli problem. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks to that problem. Wouldn't it be great if we could fix, bring peace to the Middle East? Paul says, yes! Ephesians chapter 2, here's how. Okay? So, so if that's the application in, in the last half of the chapter, then the solution in verses 4 through 10 is what, how Jesus showed us how to fix this, what Jesus revealed to us about how to fix this. And then the problem in Ephesians, in verses 1 through 3, is about this problem of humans hating each other and wanting to kill each other. Okay, so that's sort of where we're going. Um, we're going to be looking at several key words as we go throughout this chapter. And again, I encourage you, if you're not part of my online discipleship group, you, you really should join, especially for the online, for the Gospel Dictionary online course. I'm going to summarize two of the key words, the word dead and the word sin, in our study of Ephesians 2 verse 1 today. But you need to really understand what the Bible means by those two words if you're going to properly understand this first verse uh, and, and indeed the, higher, the, the whole chapter. Okay? So um, that's sort of where we're going by the way, Paul includes himself in these, in the description of these practices. Um, but, uh, you know, remember, Paul kept the law perfectly. So, so there's all these issues there. We'll be talking about wrath. Okay, so all these key words. But let's just move on then. Basically, I sort of gave you the summary that you often hear from Ephesians chapter 2 before. Let me now sort of summarize Ephesians chapter 2 based on a few of these insights. Here is a proper summary of what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2, and this is where we're headed, and I will explain this and unpack it as we go along. Here's a summary. We humans live in a world of sin and death, which we inflict upon ourselves by accusing, condemning, and killing one another. Worst of all, we do it all in God's name. We justify our hatred and our violence against other people by saying, this is God's will. Okay, We do these things because in our flesh, we don't know how to live any other way. And it's not just secular people who do this, it's we, we religious people. We're the leaders of this, because we are experts at killing and condemning and accusing other people in God's name. That's the great problem. But Jesus came to show us a way to peace, how to live at peace with one another. Verses 4 through 10. And if we believe and follow the way of Jesus, then the church can lead the world into this way of peace as well. Verses 11 through 22. Okay? That summary is very different, and frankly, a lot more exciting than that summary I gave us earlier. Okay, so I know it's a lot of information. You might say, Jeremy, I'm not fully understanding what you're talking about here. That's okay. Listen to all the podcast episodes as we go through here, and we'll be unpacking it as we go along. Let's just dive in then to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I maybe should have put this off for a second podcast episode, but I wanted to get at least one verse done. So here we go. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Okay? So this is the beginning of Paul's description about how our life used to be before we were Christians, before we learned the truth that Jesus revealed, which Paul is going to discuss later. 
And we really need to, there's these sort of two key phrases that Paul is using here, this word dead, and then these, uh, these other two words, transgressions and sins, which are synonyms. And so to properly understand what Paul is talking about here, we need to properly understand those two words, those, those phrases. And again, I, I do cover them both in my Gospel Dictionary online course. By the way, if you're not part of the Gospel Dictionary online course, uh, you can. I, I have explained both terms in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, which you can get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever, okay? So let's talk about this word dead first real briefly. Many Christians and pastors say that the word dead means non-existent, or, or more likely, uh, someone has complete inability. They're, they are completely unable, completely powerless to do anything regarding their spiritual health or do anything good you know, for God or anything like that. It's not uncommon to hear a pastor say, a dead person can't do anything. They just lie there, right? And you think, well, yeah, we've seen dead people at funerals. They're not doing anything. They're just lying there. So the pastor says, you know, a body just lies there. It can't talk. It can't think. It can't move. That's the way spiritually dead people are. They can't do anything to move closer to God. They can't talk properly to God. They can't even think properly about spiritual matters. They definitely can't believe in Jesus. They are totally unable to do anything spiritually good. And, and many times they use Ephesians 2.1 to defend that idea. Now, this sort of teaching is completely wrong. Uh, it does not fit the text. It does not fit the biblical understanding of the word dead. And... Um, the biblical definition of the word dead basically means that uh, something is not functioning properly. Okay? Uh, it, it refers to something that is inactive or powerless, uh, not acting, not functioning the way God intended or desired. So, um, th that we've been, you know, basically we've been separated from our God-given purpose. We could put it that way. For example, Paul writes in Romans 4.19 that Abraham was dead. Uh, but, but but Abraham was very much alive. I mean, he was talking and he was moving and he was thinking and acting. So what is Paul referring to? Well, um, he was not functioning properly, that is, in his ability, in, his, in God's desire for him to be able to procreate. Okay? So, so there's an example uh, of, you know, uh, of, of the word, how the word dead means that something is not functioning properly. And I, I'm trying to make sure I don't get too graphic in my details here. So anyway, now when someone physically dies, it's true. They are no longer functioning properly as God planned and intended. Death was never supposed to come upon human beings, was never supposed to touch human beings. Okay. So uh, yes, when someone is dead, physically dead, they're not doing anything, but, but, but we shouldn't take from that that someone who is spiritually dead can't do anything either. It just means that they're not functioning properly in, in the way God wants. Okay, uh, Abraham could be described as dead, even though he was very much alive and very active in, in, in a wide variety of ways. His, his body's not functioning properly. Okay, So a dead body is not functioning properly. Someone who's spiritually dead is not functioning properly. That's all it means. So um, someone who is spiritually dead, look, they, they have a spirit. We know that from Scripture. If they don't have a spirit, then, then they're physically dead. Uh, so, so basically it just means the spiritual side of them is not functioning the way God intended. They are separated from the God-given functions for which they are created. And we need to be very careful that we think about death this way, uh, because it's, 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 it's necessary uh, that people can 
act within their spirit and think about God in, in various ways uh, as a way of the spirit drawing them to Jesus. Okay, so when Paul is writing here about us being dead, he's not thinking about total inability or any such thing. He's simply saying that we were not functioning as God intended. By the way, he's not necessarily talking here about spiritual death. No, in the, notice in the context, he's not referring to that. What he's referring to, again, going back to as a humanity, we're, you know, as a description of the problem here, the overall problem, uh, that uh, we are not functioning as humanity the way God wants and desired and intends. So, Anyway, um, now Paul does go on in Ephesians 2.2 to say that we are alive. He says, you were dead in which you you live, in, in which you used to live, in a sense there. Okay, so it's just sort of a play on words there. Uh, the dead are alive, the, the living dead, the walking dead. So we, we lived and we thought and we breathed and we talked. Uh, we do good things. We, we have spiritual thoughts. We're aware of God. We could sense his calling in our life. Okay, but we're dead in that we failed to live up to what God wanted us to be and do. Okay, we're alive, but we're flunking at life. All right, and so why did we fail? You know, why did we live one way instead of the way God wanted? Well, our failure is described in the second half of the verse as trespasses and sins. The two different words here are basically synonyms. And again, I cover sin in my Gospel Dictionary online course and in the book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Also, if you want to go back and listen to some podcast episodes, uh, listen to the episodes on Genesis 3 and 4. It's, uh, I, I cover this idea of sin and death at great length in those podcast episodes as well. We often think that when Eve, when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit, that that was sin. But uh, the Bible does not refer to that as sin. It was disobedience for sure. But uh, sin is not defined until later when Cain murders Abel. Sin is crouching at the door okay, when this desire came upon Cain to murder his brother Abel. So the great sin of the Bible is humans engaging in violence against other humans. That's what Paul is referring to here. Go listen to those podcast episodes and you can see that. So, so look, in general, we can say sin is when we disobey God. So in general, I don't have much of a problem with saying Adam and Eve sinned when they ate from the, fruit, the, the forbidden fruit. Uh, but that's not the way the Bible speaks of their actions there, or, or really sin in general. Okay, so sin is specifically in Scripture. Sin is specifically the pattern of human rivalry and accusation and scapegoating, which causes us to dehumanize other human beings, treat them as less than human, think of them as monsters. Uh, and why do we do that? So that we can kill them, so that we can condemn them so that we can say it is God's will that you die. Okay, we are killing you in the name of God. That is what the Bible thinks of as sin. Ultimately then, since we're supposed to be living in harmony and unity with one another, sin is the exact opposite of that because we're killing and accusing and condemning one another. So therefore, sin is death. Sin is living in a way that is not functioning properly as God wanted and desired. Okay, and that's why sin and death are so closely connected here. So when we sin, we're not functioning properly as humans. We're not living up to God's standard of love and unity with one another. We're doing the exact opposite instead. We're living in hate and anger and violence. So, so sin is, is it's really not 
you know, about pride or rebellion or thinking we know better than God. It's about living as less than human. It's, it's dehumanizing other people. And in the process, dehumanizing ourselves. Uh, it's broken relationships between God, between one another. Okay, so, so what is Paul, as he, as he introduces the great problem here in Ephesians 2.1, what is he talking about? He's describing the human condition. Okay, but, but really, in a way, and we'll see this fleshed out more in verses 2 and 3, he's describing it in a way that most people today don't really think about the problem. If you, you were just asked the great problems in the world, very few people are going to say, oh yeah, the problem is how we wrongfully accuse other people and turn them into monsters so that we can go to war with them. That's the problem. Most people are not going to say that. Most people sort of think that's the solution. Again, how do we make peace? By going to war with them. Well, how do we go to war with them? Well, we sort of have to treat them as less than human. We have to think that they are, are monsters. We're the only of, you know, killing. So, um, and, and even more convicting, this isn't so much about them, is it? It goes back to this question, but we've got to point the finger at ourselves first. What is Paul? Who is Paul talking to here? He's talking to the church. Who has failed to live up to our function in this world as the way God wanted, intended, and desired? The church. As long as there is war in this world, the church is at fault. The church is to blame. Because it is our job, our task, our duty, our responsibility to show the world a different way, a better way, a way of truth and love and forgiveness. And when we do not live up to that responsibility, then guess what? We are living in sin. As Paul is going to talk about in the next verse, we are satanic. The satanic church. Can you believe that? That's what Paul is is basically saying. When we do the opposite of what God wants us to, then we are living in the ways of Satan, the ways of the accuser. Okay, so uh, rather than serve and build up one another, we kill and tear down one another. Rather than function as the family of God, we live in bigotry and racism. Accusing other people of just of being less than human, of being monsters, so that we can justify our violence against them, so that we can kill them in the name of God and think we're holy for doing it. it again, it goes back to this question raised by Aaron about the Middle East. It's one of the big problems. Everybody wants to solve the problem of peace in the Middle East. But right, one of the biggest issues there is that all sides involved— the Jews, the Arabs, the East, the West, okay, religious people, non-religious people, politicians, everybody. Everybody wants to blame and accuse someone else. We all want to point the finger. Okay, the Arabs blame the Jews. They blame the satanic West. Okay, the Jews blame the Arabs and the Muslims and, and Russia sometimes, or who knows. Okay, everybody's trying to dehumanize the other groups. Why? So that we can justify our mistreatment of them, our neglect of them, our ignoring of their problems. So that we can drop bombs on them and kill them. And, you know, that's the problem that Paul is addressing in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's going to continue to go on to address this problem in the next two verses. And then the solution and the application at the end of the chapter, that's where we're going. But I think you can already see how important this chapter is going to be for us. This is much more, look, going to heaven, how to go to heaven, how to receive eternal life, it's very important. (laughs) I don't want to undermine that truth. But the issues that are concerning us in our life right now, and the problems in this world right now, um, a little more pressing to some degree. 
Again, I'm not trying to neglect eternity at all. Uh, but if all we're doing is focused on going to heaven when we die, we're not going to be any earthly good. We're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good, as some people like to say. Uh, this, this chapter is, again, it's not just about the problems in the Middle East. It's the problems in our own life. How we mistreat people of other sex, women or females, or, or men sometimes. How uh, maybe we accuse others of race being racist simply because their skin is a different color. We've seen a lot of that today in the news and elsewhere. Uh, certain groups of people are racist simply because they have a, a certain color of skin. That's wrong. Uh, either direction. To treat other people in, as inferior or accuse them of sin uh, simply because of something external. Um, the problem in politics. One side accuses the other side of being evil and liars and monsters. Okay? Uh, as less than human. We start wishing for their death. Uh, religion. <laughs> religion is a great source of violence in the world. Because everybody thinks God is on their side in killing their enemies. Okay, so I think you're seeing how important this issue is, how Paul has introduced it, and we're going to talk more about the problem in, the, in, in, in verses 2 and 3. Then we'll look at the solution, the truth revealed in Jesus, and then finally, how we as the church can work to solve this problem in the world. That's where we're going. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I hope that what you're seeing here is sort of a, a revelation into your own heart and mind and how you think and, and treat other people. Because we want to avoid sin. We want to live up to our calling as, as what God has desired and intended and created us for, so that we can bring this world to, to love and peace in Jesus Christ. Join me next time as we pick back up in Ephesians 2.2. We'll see you then.